Welcome to We Are Chafee Looking Upstream, a conversational podcast of humanness, community, and well-being based in Chafee County, Colorado. I'm Adam Williams. Today's conversation is powerful. It's insightful and I think important. I think it's one of those kinds of conversations that we all need to be having if we truly care about making things better as individuals living in these challenging, disconnected times and in our communities and as a nation. We have to be willing to have difficult conversations like this one with people that we might not always know exactly how to go about it. Today I'm talking with Alicia Perm. Alicia offers us a reminder that personal growth and emotional maturity It's about the willingness to look at ourselves and unlearn the identities and perspectives that just are not serving us well, and learn those that will. Elise and I cover a lot of amazing, universal ground. Along the way, we touch on several of the threads that have developed throughout many of the conversations that I've had here on Looking Upstream. Things like resilience, connection, healing, humility, community, compassion. Elise is a poet who grew up in unconventional circumstances. We talk about how those circumstances helped her to develop resilience and her voice, which she has used not only as a performing slam poet, but as an activist. We talk about Alicia's path from being an activist out of righteous anger to being an activist out of love and one who has earned her master's degree and is starting her career as a social worker. We talk about a lot in this relatively short time. At the heart of all of it is respect, a focus on each other as humans, and breaking down barriers. Show notes with links in the transcript from today's conversation are posted at wearechafee.org. We Are Chafee Looking Upstream is a collaboration with the Chafee County Department of Public Health and the Chafee Housing Authority, and it's supported by the Colorado Public Health and Environment Office of Health Disparities. Now, here is my conversation with Alicia Perm. I've been looking forward to this conversation. I think we have some really great things to talk about. So thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. I want to start off with slam poetry. I understand that you're a slam poet, and I know a little bit about that, but I'm kind of thinking, you know, for anyone who maybe when I say the word poetry is thinking of, you know, old school, we're talking, you know, Robert Frost or, (laughs) you know, go back to Shakespeare or maybe Mary Oliver. Or if they watch the inauguration with Joe Biden a couple of years ago and you have Amanda Gorman, Mm -hmm. but that's not what we're talking about. So I'd love if you could start us off with telling people what slam poetry is about, how you got into it, that sort of thing. Yeah. um, So I feel like slam poetry is kind of like different for everybody, right? So um, I consider like different types of like poets. So when I think of slam poetry, right, I feel like you have structured poetry where you can get up there, you'll write something, you practice it, recite it. And then I think of kind of like on the fly poetry, right, where you get up there and you kind of think about how you feel. And then that's what kind of like comes about. So I think for me, slam poetry is, for me personally, right, as a poet, it's about kind of getting up there um, and thinking about what has happened in the world or what's affecting me currently and kind of just releasing that feeling and energy like to the audience. Um, I feel like lyrics do hold, right, like or haikus or whatever you want to call them, like they do hold a certain power, but it's also about how you deliver it, which I think everybody has a different, right, like delivery style, um, but it's all about feeling and like what you want to convey to like the audience. So, so you go by feel, Yeah. you get up there and you freestyle. 
Yeah. <laughs> it's got to be scary, doesn't it? I mean, how do you how do you feel about that? Or is it an energy that you use and say, I don't know where I'm going next. I don't know what word's next. Let's just write it out. Like, how does that work for you? Um, I think for me, it's about, okay, getting up there, right? And then letting the audience know that I am a freestyle poet. <laughs> so when I do this, it's not, don't look for me to look at my phone and you know recite something for you I said because that is not who I am when I step into like my poetry kind of like persona um so I think for me is letting them know that hey like I'm gonna this is freestyle so if my voice cracks or if you know you see me looking at my phone I'm looking at my phone because I'm looking at research like I like to be um like have all the facts basically so if I'm looking at my phone I'll tell them I'm like all right give me a second I'll get some facts in my head and then take a deep breath and I kind of just like release it so I think it's also um, about bringing the audience in on the freestyle that kind of makes it effective as well because then once they get into it they're like oh oh my goodness right and then when I stop or it takes me a long time to come up with more stanzas they you know they'll snap or they'll clap because now they're in the understanding that you know when you're freestyle it's literally about conveying the feeling and making sure if you're freestyling about like what has happened and you know for the past three years COVID George Floyd and all those good things right it's going to take time right because there's a lot of facts but it's also very very emotionally heavy to do things like that um, so I also make sure that I extend grace to myself when I am freestyling because it's, it's it's definitely a lot of pressure but yeah. I feel more pressure sitting in oh, is this going to make sense right like that's pressure for me to, to sit and write it, it yeah so I like to get up there and just go for it so you're really in, inviting the audience to say, I want you to feel this with me. Mm-hmm. And you're giving yourself grace, but it also encourages them and it lets them know. And when you're in that kind of environment, I'm guessing it's it's fairly supportive and encouraging. And people are there for that moment. They're mm-hmm. not there to just be entertained and criticized or, you know, whatever, right? So yeah. does it feel like that energy of community kind of surrounds this? this kind of experience? Uh, Yeah, I would definitely say so. Um, I love people who are able to write poems and then get up there, remember them, and convey them the way that they want the audience to hear it and feel it. But not everybody is like that, right? I feel like anytime we talk about any type of art, every artist is different. Even if they're all practicing the same craft, they're not all doing it the same way. And so I feel like when I get up there, it is like a sense of community, but it's also a sense of like vulnerability, right? Because I'm also letting them know that like, hey, like when I do this, this is very raw for me. Um, Because anytime I freestyle poet, I only do if it's like poetry. I only do it if it's placed on my heart, right? So if I'm feeling like the need to like get something off my chest or to like inform a subset group of people, that's the only time I get up and I freestyle, you know? So it's definitely a sense of community. um, And it's a sense of letting them know that every emotion that you're going to feel with me is the first, not the first time I felt it, but the first time I'm feeling it and conveying it to the audience. Every moment is its own. Mm -hmm. Feel it with me. Yeah. That word vulnerability, you know, I've been visual. I, I visualize a lot of things. And that's one lately that I've started visualizing. It's almost like this flare or a sign that we're shooting up when we make ourselves vulnerable and we're saying, meet me at this crossroads. Come be vulnerable with me. Feel this with me. And it sounds like to me, that's what you're describing as this experience. So I want to ask, is it the same as spoken word? Because people might be familiar with that phrase. Um, I feel like slam poetry and spoken word are like slightly different just because slam poetry is more about um, getting up there and, you know, 
doing it, doing it, doing it, and not really paying attention to like how you might say something or the speed at which you might say something. I feel like I like me personally, like everybody may, you know, think of it differently. When I think of spoken word, it's more, it's much more like articulate and slowed down, right? So when I do spoken word, it's like, okay, I'm going to talk slowly and I'm going to take numerous pauses. Whereas if I'm doing slam poetry, it's like, this is what's going on. This is what I'm trying to convey. And like, that's it. Spoken word, I feel like garnishes more um, interaction and reaction from the audience because you have to wait to see if they understand any messages that you're trying to get them to understand or if they're feeling what you're saying. I consider all poetry feeling, right? But spoken word to me is much more... I'm going to say this slowly, I'm going to pause, and then I want you to react um, in a sense. So, Okay. Yeah. Is this something you still do? Um, I haven't done it in a long time. <laughs> I think that for me doing poetry, it is it releases a lot for me. And so, um, like I said, I'm not like, a, I don't do like structured poetry, right? So... This this these past three years have been like crazy. <laughs> they have been so crazy, right? And so I haven't really found a space to kind of open up that realm, right? Because when I go up there, everything because I freestyle, everything's gonna be raw and I'm gonna be vulnerable. And I also need to make sure that I feel safe when I'm doing that. And so I think these past three years has really been testing like the safety aspect. Because I'll get up there and I'll perform, right? But if I'm talking about you know politics or what people you know black lives matter even though that's not political right that that is also a very you know kind of testy subject right especially in the, the world right now like we have to be very careful about what we want to present to a community because it could have a completely adverse reaction and that wasn't your intention um right. so and i'm gonna get into those things with you i really want to talk about some of that stuff in time here, mm -hmm. um, staying right where we are for the moment, I'm wondering what is significant to you, what is most important to you, or the potential you feel for slam poetry and for this art form and the way you express yourself. Um, what is most important about it for you? I think what's most important to me about doing poetry of like all kinds, spoken word, slam poetry, um, is making sure that. I'm not just giving a message, but I'm also giving a feeling because when I go up there and I talk about these things that impact me or impact my life or impact my community, right? I want people to feel it, right? Because it's really, it's really hard for people to see sometimes what's right in front of them if they don't identify with that group, right? So if I can draw the feeling out of you, I'm drawing, I'm also drawing out connection. And so I think that's what's really most important for me is drawing out the feeling, which leads to like the connection, because people will sit back and they'll think they'll be like, oh, I, I never really thought about it that way. And it was like, and there's nothing wrong with that. But when you don't have to think about something a certain way, but you hear it and you feel it, right, because you can hear something and not and not have any feeling about it, right? right? But when you hear it and feel it, it creates a whole different kind of like connection and meaning for the people who are on the other side of it. We can put out facts all day long. Yeah. It's not necessarily going to convert anybody. Exactly. Even yeah. if we think it's incredibly logical, incredibly intelligent, and, well, you can't argue against this, <laughs> but you go to that place of feeling. Mm -hmm. We all have that. That's where the, that connection of humanness is. So absolutely, I understand and, and love that. I'm wondering if anybody in your family or maybe it was people, loved ones, others surrounding you when you were growing up, if... If they influenced this, was there anybody else who 
was creative, whether it was in poetry or not, or somebody who encouraged you, maybe if it wasn't about poetry specifically, were there people in your family saying, yes, use your voice, yes, get this out, you know, convey this feeling, be this communicator? Um, honestly, not really. <laughs> and I mean, granted, there are people in my family who are creative, right? But I feel like poetry for me is also drawing from my own experience, right? And so if I grew up um, where I necessarily feel like I couldn't express myself or I couldn't express how I felt, right, that kind of shuttered everything. And I'm like, uh, maybe I shouldn't say anything, right? Um, so I think for me, the transformation happened um, in my early like college years, so like my undergrad. That's when the transformation happened for me because I left home, right, 18, thinking I got the, I can handle everything, right? <laughs> and that was not the case, right? And then I also feel like times when you're removed from your home environment and as somebody who's in school for social work, right, I start to reflect on certain things. I'm like, oh, that wasn't right. That was not good. And so I think for me, it's also drawing on just the way I grew up, right? Like my dad is very articulate, very smart man. Um, and he also has a way with his words, but the way that he uses his words is more like preaching or like that type of connection. And the way that I use it is to more so invoke feeling about things that, you know, we all go through that we probably just don't talk about or we don't understand. So do you feel like he has an appreciation for how you use your words? Yeah. Yeah, totally. I'm, I'm my daddy's daughter. We, we're just we're just alike. So okay. I think I think he loves it. Yeah. Tell me more about your childhood, about your family, and, and growing up in Cleveland, right? Um, well, yeah, I was in Virginia for 12 years, and then okay. I moved to Cleveland for from 13 to, like, 20-ish. Okay. Um, and so I was the youngest of three. Yay, me. Um, me too. And I have <laughs> nice. two older brothers. Nice. Yeah. I have an older sister and an older brother. Um, me and my brother are three days apart, actually. Um, same year, same month, just— Three days apart. Fun fact. And so I think Are you for, twins? Um, I do call him my twin, but we have different moms. So three days apart. Yep. Different moms, three days apart, same month, same year. So uh, yeah, I do when we grew up, like growing up, I did call him my twin because I'm like, at this point, we are twins. Like we're we are twins. Like just we don't have to tell anybody that we have different moms. Just tell them that I stayed in three days longer. And that's <laughs> we went on with that for a long time, right? Because, you know, sharing that I had a, a different mom and that she wasn't involved in my life was something that I was not kind of like prepared to talk about. And so for me growing up as the youngest of three um, in Virginia, I was the youngest of six. Um, it was definitely hard. I think that the reason I cling to my dad so much is because I feel growing up, I haven't had a maternal figure that has made the connection with me. Right. So I feel like when we talk about, you know, not having one parent, right, it's often, oh, you don't have a dad or, you know, your dad is not in your life. But not having a mom, I feel like presents a different type of wound and a different type of need for connection, especially like maternal connection. Right. Um, and so growing up, that's what I wanted and I didn't get it. And so it, you know, resulted in me kind of just being angry or, you know, resentful in a sense or closed off. Um, and so. It was hard, um, but 
I wouldn't be where I am. And I feel like I feel like once people have healed from so much, that sounds so cliche, right? Like I wouldn't be where I am if I didn't go through the struggle of lacking the the need for a maternal connection or if I didn't go through the struggle of feeling like that I was like the black sheep of the family and that I always did stuff wrong. Even if I did stuff right, the the weight of doing stuff wrong was just never never cleared or never lifted like off of my shoulders. And so that that was really hard, but who did you feel like you had to please with that by being right or or in their version of right? Um, my brother and my sister's mom. I feel like I had to, like, growing up, me are, like, so me, because me and my brother are three days apart, right, same grade, we literally, you know, same grade all the time. And so I feel like for me, I, and my sister's also very smart, right? So those two, <laughs> love them to pieces, right? Those two, you know, straight A students, you know, don't really, you know, talk back or if they do talk back, it's, you know, it's not it's not as, as much as I would because I'm like, I like to question things, right? And because I felt a sense of being displaced, right? Like I felt more of a need to question certain things than they did. And so like, that whole realm is just it's really it's really kind of weird to see because I feel like I had to appease our mom because I'm like she has these two kids who straight A students they never get calls from teachers right like they are not they're not out here acting crazy as as I was right and not in the sense of just like getting smart with teachers so things like that right and so I feel like I had to appease her but then I also had to appease the teachers right because they're like oh well I had your sister in class and I had your brother in class and they put this you know essentially perception that I'm going to be them yeah. and they got the exact opposite. Right? I, I understand that <laughs> one completely because my brothers, they were several years older, but mm-hmm. not only were they doing well in school and all their endeavors, yeah. my parents had been teachers. So everybody knew who the youngest in the Williams family was yeah. and had expectations. And so I was bucking that for a number of years. Yeah. You mentioned being the youngest of six mm-hmm. in Virginia. Mm-hmm. Then the youngest of three. Is that because of a shift when you moved from Virginia to Cleveland? And it sounds like then you were with the mother of your brother and that sister. Mm-hmm. And you feel like you didn't have a maternal figure. So mm-hmm. sounds like maybe the relationship you felt there was different. I, I'm going to guess the mother that you grew up with, or at least in those teen years, mm-hmm. is that any connection, I don't want to put story there where it's not, but if you can help me connect the dots, it sounds like she might have treated you differently than the the brother and sister in that house. Oh, yeah, totally. Um, I think that and me and my dad kind of like talk about this all the time, right? Because now that I'm, I'm 25, I'm like, Dad, you got to. You got to be honest with me. There's no reason. I'm here now, right? And things have happened. So let's like talk about it. And so I think for me... Um, she definitely treated me differently, but I feel like the problem with family systems and family structures, right, when children are treated differently, it's really hard for parents to notice because in their mind, they're treating us all the same, right? Um, but me me getting in trouble for not wanting to come home because I felt like nobody wanted me there, right? That that was me being treated differently. But if my sister stayed out and didn't tell my mom where she was, it was more so they had a conversation. But as opposed to me, it's like why are you doing this? I'm going to send you back to your dad, X, Y, and Z. And so I think that um, 
that like dynamic and like growing up teen years are also just as important as like informative as like you're right your younger years your adolescent years because it's shaping how you view yourself in the world and you know what you want from people who come into your life and so like the dynamic that we had was you know she had no choice but to take me right my dad said you're not gonna you know take two and then leave the other one here like because at that point I was also not young enough to understand their dynamic and so how I was treated was a reflection of my dad's actions and I think that's hard to for my mom to see right because she may have think that she's healed from she's healed from being cheated on and hey right. he had a whole baby on her right and then then tell her about it she found right. baby girl clothes in, in the trunk of the car and and he had a they had a son so she like <laughs> what is this right and so I think that finding out about me threw her off and then having to raise me right um it, it created such a strain because she wasn't given a choice um, but at the same time, I shouldn't have been the one that paid for my dad's actions because right. I also didn't ask to be here. But that's the funny thing with trauma and with people who are hurt, right, is that it's really hard for them to step back from the trauma and from being hurt and recognize that this is a whole child. She did not ask to be here. I should do my due diligence the best that I know how. And then as she gets older, we can talk about our dynamic, which hasn't, right, which hasn't happened, right? Like, and it still hasn't happened. And I'm 25 now. And so that has definitely strained our relationship a lot because I'm like you're still not really understanding that you made me pay for my dad's actions right so the way you treated me or like not treating me as an equal essentially or not getting me the things I need um, but making sure that my brother and my sister have the things that they need whether it's you know getting clothes or shoes or just love support right like so you'll come to my brother's uh, me, my, my brother did wrestling and I did softball you'll come to my brother's wrestling matches but you never you came to like one of my one of my softball games right and I played softball for two three years and so that also had an effect on me because I'm like you don't even support me when I'm doing something good so why continue to do something good when I could just Give you what you're looking for, which is a reason to treat me like the 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 ugly duckling or the stepchild, right? Because that's essentially what I was, right? I was this this little girl who came into it came into her world, um, unbeknownst to her, right? But was told that you you need to take care of her. And granted, she probably did the best she could, but that's a, that that's a funny thing with trauma. You do the best you can, but until you step out of that you're not going to see all the discrepancies that have came along with how you treated people when you were in the midst of trauma or being hurt or whatever the, whatever the case may be. It sounds like you've done a lot of processing of this for yourself. I would imagine, you know, it's an ongoing, you know, effort to do that, I think, for any of us. Mm -hmm. But it sounds like even though she is not where you necessarily might hope she would be able to see clearly make amends whatever you feel like you would want or is needed at least you're able to do that for yourself and continue in a strong way moving forward is, is that a fair assessment do you feel like um you're, you're in a good place overall with who you are and where you're moving yeah i think that um as I go further into like the social work profession and developing that kind of like social work persona and, you know, doing the research and looking at all the facts behind why people may, you know, react a certain way to certain situations. 
it sucks. I'm not going to say that it's not terrible, right? But I had to take a step back and I had to, and I had to think like, okay, what was going on with her that affected how she raised me and how she treated me? But I also am to a point where I'm like, I wouldn't be what I wouldn't be who I am and I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing if the things in my life you know, didn't play out the way that they did. So it's like, it's a certain aspect of like appreciation, but then the aspect of like, you know, my inner child is like, Alicia, that is still wrong. But my growing self is like, but she also had trauma that she didn't deal with and she didn't know how to deal with it. And the closest thing to, you know, to the trauma was the the child (laughs) that is, you know, in the room next to her that she has to raise and care for. And so I had to kind of, remove myself from like the inner child aspect and kind of think about it on like a grander scale right is you know some parents go through things too and granted children should never become victims of um parents trauma but if the parents don't do the work or if they aren't in therapy it's going to be hard to not inflict trauma right it becomes kind of just like a a perpetuating system of I'm traumatized or I'm hurt so now it's going to go to you because I haven't done the work for myself um and maybe she is doing the work for herself now but like I said I'm 25 and to me damage has been done so the only thing I can do is repair the damage that was done to me and then hopefully move forward and cultivate a better relationship however that may look to us so personal growth feels like a real push pull you know mm-hmm. you we're still dealing with those hurts and the sources of those while we're also growing and getting a new maybe clearer view of ourselves mm-hmm. and what's possible as we move forward and and you know it's past present and future where you know if we have our eyes on where we can go as a stronger person and actually the word resilience comes to mind mm-hmm. i don't know if that resonates for yeah, you totally. but this resilience that you are building and have built mm-hmm. for what you're doing um you said you're studying social work and well i want to ask you actually before we get to that piece mm-hmm. if we go from poetry and using your voice You mentioned Black Lives Matter. Mm -hmm. You went into activism and using your voice as well. And I wonder, do you feel like you've always been strong with that voice, always confident in speaking up? Was it a process for you to get there? Was there ever a a point of insecurity where you're just like, well, I can't go out on the street and and speak up for this? Or, you know what, how did you come to that place of, of expressing yourself during the Black Lives Matter movement in the past few years? Um. It, it is it is it is totally a process as much as I'm like, oh, I can get out there and I can do it. It is such a process. Right. Because I feel like in order to do poetry or in order to do activism, you have to step and you have to get outside of your own head. Right. Because the thing about my time protesting and activism is that when I was doing it, and this is also what I'm working on now, too, when I was doing it, it was from a place of hurt and anger, right? So for me, George Floyd was like, that was it. Like, I was fed up. I'm like, are we still are we still doing this? And then there's a nine-minute-plus video of this man losing his life, right? And I was like, and for me, that's not new, right? Like, we've seen multiple people die, like Tamir Rice, Trayvon Martin, Breonna Taylor. Like, we've seen, and that's, what, only four names out of hundreds right and so i think for me that was the tip of the iceberg i was like we're we're still being killed in the streets like we're dogs and i use that and i and i I want people to sit with that right i said because that is what is happening if you can lay us out in the street 
and then put your hand on your hips and say, oh, what well, he was resisting or she was resisting. You're killing us like dogs. Like we're stray dogs running amok, right? And so for me, George Floyd was the point where I was fed up. I was angry. And the thing about activism, right, is that activism is also about feeling, right? Because you're not going to stand up and speak for something unless it's self-interest, unless it affects you. And so I think for me, it became a process, but then the process kind of got like slowly like taken because I'm like, I'm angry. So my time protesting in Illinois, I... I did my activism out of anger, which put my safety at risk. Um, and as for my voice, I feel like I i knew I've always had like a strong voice and like just the way I present myself or the way I talk about things, especially if I'm like passionate about them. Um, but like the ability to kind of like rein that in. And also understand that because my voice is so powerful, I have to be careful what I say and how I use it. And so I think for me that like when I came here from my era of like George Floyd, that was something that I had to sit with because I'm like, I was out protesting and standing up to police officers who were holding assault rifles. I said in that moment, they could have killed me. I said, but because I was doing my activism out of anger and not caring about my safety, I said that became a little bit more dangerous, right? Because we all know that, you know, sometimes people who are activists, um, and not that I'm on this level, right? But sometimes people who are activists and go against certain systems, that system reacts and they end up dead or missing or whatever the case may be. Not really into conspiracy theories, but that that has happened. We know about the protesters who went missing. Um, and so... This for me has been like a process, but it's also been a process of understanding that, okay, if I'm going to be an activist, what does it mean to be an activist and agitate communities out of love and care and the desire for change, as opposed to saying, you know, I don't like the system, we need to change it, burn it down, right? Like, that's a completely different message as opposed to, as opposed to like, let's have this conversation about what has been happening for years for years and right. it's, and it's still happening and there has been even though the right the Black Lives Matter movement spanned across the world there has still been no systemic or social change and so I think that's also kind of the hardest part about it too is because when I use my voice I'm like when I let those protests in Illinois I was like I was angry I was you know saying a lot of things I probably shouldn't have and putting my life in danger but not only putting my life in danger getting the people who were there getting them riled up also put them in danger mm, yeah. and so it's it's a it's I don't want to say it's a slippery slope because you can definitely stop it like once you acknowledge how powerful your voice is or the power that you can have over people you have to be careful how you use it because we could all end up on a really bad end of a a situation. So we're, we're talking about the difference between reaction mm -hmm. versus response for one thing here, because mm -hmm. a response is where we have stepped back, taken a breath, considered what might be a better approach. Mm -hmm. And it, occur, it occurs to me that we're also saying there's a difference between arguing, yelling against something, against the system, as valid as that might be, the energy you're describing is different compared to I'm for something. I'm for the love of my community. I'm for the love of myself, for my family, for this. All of us mm -hmm. as a united community mm -hmm. that is diverse and we all need to have voice, you know? So it can seem like a, a subtle difference, but it has a big impact difference, mm -hmm. I think. 
Um, you mentioned Tamir Rice, mm -hmm. a 12-year-old boy who was killed in Cleveland mm -hmm. in 2014. If my math is correct, you were living in Cleveland at that mm -hmm. time? Yeah. Did Were you aware of that? Was that in your household, with your friends, in your neighborhood, whoever around you that that would have resonated with? Was that a conversation? Did you feel that one um, because of, of just being aware that it had happened even in your now home city? Mm-hmm. Um, so not that we didn't really talk about it like in our house, but like I said, grew up very kind of strained from each other. So that was something that I didn't really talk about at home, but like in, in school, right? Like for us, we're like, you know, somebody else just died and he was a 12 year old boy. And so it didn't really hit me until Trayvon Martin because then it became it came full circle for me because I think at Trayvon when Trayvon Martin um, was killed I was in high school and so when Tamir Rice happened I was like maybe in middle school about to go to high school right so I still didn't really have a clear understanding of what was going on I just knew that the police shot this 12 year old boy for having a fake gun and the conversation that we had in school which <laughs> made me so angry in some of my classes, we talked about it, and, you know, we talked about a few things. The first thing, a lot of people were just like, oh, well, you know, he shouldn't have had, you know, a toy gun. We know how the system is. I said, and my, my, rebut to that, my rebuttal to that all the time is that he was 12. He was 12. If you are taught de-escalation, if you are taught how to interact with the community you serve, why did you feel the need to shoot him? If you saw the orange tip on the fake gun... Why did you still feel the need to shoot him? So I think for me, there are a lot of people um, as we kind of got older and we started to recognize what happened with Timmy Rice and then with and then Trayvon Martin came along. We kind of sat back and that was the first time that I understood that, right, the system is stacked against us as minorities, as BIPOC people. But it's also stacked against us within our own communities where we are supposed to feel safe. And so... The conversation happened a lot at school, and a lot of people were, oh, well, I, I wouldn't play with, like, a toy gun. I'm like, half of y'all feel real guns, but that's not the point. Mm -hmm. I said, but the, the point being, right, is that he was 12. You mean to tell me that as a grown man, you can't talk down or ask questions to a 12-year-old? Like, yeah. that, that shift for me, mm -hmm. like, sent me into, a, like, a not a spiral, but just, like, an eye-opening moment of, like, we are in danger, and the world has yet to see how much danger we're in. When I was a kid, it was a different time and place. Mm -hmm. I've talked about on this podcast, I grew up in a small town, rural Midwest in northern Missouri. I used to play with guns all the time, mm -hmm. uh, toy guns. We would play, you know, cowboys and Indians, cops and robbers, whatever, and I've given a lot of thought to this over the years since, and now as a father to two boys in particular, and, and the gun obsession in this mm -hmm. country and, and how mm -hmm. that affects us as kids and, and as parents and where we think, oh, yeah, it's normal. Mm -hmm. That's what he's playing. Or I was playing as a soldier, right, a mm -hmm. hero in war because we're obsessed with that too yeah. as this visual in TV shows or movies. And – it seems like there are domino effects from this. If we make this the thing that even kids, even as, and maybe especially boys, mm -hmm. are taught is within that realm of masculinity and how we are supposed to come up feeling tough, feeling strong, feeling like heroes, whatever, for something like that to have happened, I don't think we can say it's disconnected. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, 
I want to ask you then, okay, you're aware of these things, participation in Black Lives Matter. When there was a counter response in language to that of all lives matter, what was your thought on that? What is your thought, your reaction, your feeling on all lives matter? Um, I'm sure you saw. I just like smirked and like laughed a little bit Um, (laughs) because I think that when that whole saying first came out, I like I said, it was during the era of George Floyd. And at least for me, that's when it became most prominent. And it made me angry at first. And I'm like, y'all, y'all are not getting it. Like, what is the deal? Right. And so my response to that, as I've kind of grown in my activism and grown like as a person, is that we never said all lives didn't matter. Right. And this has been a saying on on social media, too. All lives can't matter until black lives matter because black lives are, are included in all lives. So when you say all lives, you are separating the black lives which is inherently saying that our lives do not matter. You're saying everybody above us, their lives matter. Let's fight for them. But if I'm saying, hey, Black Lives Matter, we're being killed in the streets in multiple states, right? Your response is, oh, but all lives still matter. But my response is, but what about mine? I want to ask, is this, was, do you feel, I don't know if you're just being extra nice here, (laughs) or do you feel like, because I don't think it's that, the people who were behind that, I don't think it's a matter of not getting it. Mm. I think it's bad faith, disingenuous manipulation of the of the conversation. Mm-hmm. I think it's showing up to this. How, how can you look at Black Lives Matter, read it as if you are saying only Black Lives Matter? Mm-hmm. That is not an adult, rational, intelligent <laughs> response. So to me, this is about politics because mm-hmm. this is not even just with what you're referring to as the George Floyd era. It's not just with Black Lives Matter. This is the way politics and the way that has infected, uh, I hate the phrase culture war, but it's it's the one that's out there and, and used and I think reasonably understood mm-hmm. as it ties social things and politics in this country together. This has been going on for many, many years. Mm-hmm. If it's not obvious, that also has angered me. Mm-hmm this all lives matter thing. And the reason is because I am interested in honest dialogue. Mm -hmm. I don't see the purpose in trying to be destructive with Mm -hmm. each other. Yeah, It's upsetting to me when we're not honest and open and actually taking the human element of these things into account Mm -hmm. and saying, we can do this better. To me, that's an act of choice Mm -hmm. to say, I don't want it to be better. Mm -hmm. And that pisses me off. I think you made a good point, right? You use the word that I I use all the time, right? You said human. And I think that what has happened is that our lives as black people have been politicized. And so the all lives matter, you're right, has became a political statement, right? But that's because as the system has been working for years now since the abolishment of slavery, right? It's saying that, hey, like your life is political, And it's like, okay, but as a white person, your life is not political. It's telling us that you are part of the system and not even a part of the system. You are a pawn within the system. So if I can make Black Lives Matter political to get people to react, which they obviously did, right? Reacted the way that the system wanted them to. You can pit them against each other, right? So I think the... The saying that I always like to use is that my life is not political. Your life is not political. It is humanities, right? Like, when did we get to a point where we're like, oh, 
that's a political statement. It becomes political because y'all think as people who believe in all lives matter, you think that as a majority, right, that you should still hold that control. You think that as a majority that me speaking out against a system that is embedded with power, right, is taking away that power. So it's also about power too, right? Because if you have people saying, oh, Black Lives Matter, oh no, but all lives matter. And then you'll have people on the Black Lives Matter saying that my life is not political. And then people in All Lives Matter, they don't really have a response to that because in their mind, they have deemed my black body as a political pawn within this system of power. And I think, too, that a lot of people believe that what's going to happen if, you know, what's going to happen if black people get their rights? What's going to happen if we, you know, if the system stops working the way that it was designed to, they feel like their power has been taken away. And when people feel like power is being stripped from them, they're going to react. They are going to react. So we're all literally political and pawns within this system of power. But the problem isn't our beliefs. I don't, I don't really want to classify all as matter as a belief, but whatever. Um, it's it's to keep us separated. Because if we have people on All Lives Matter, kind of like what you did, right? Take a step back and say, this is a humanity issue. This is a humanity problem. What's going to happen? We're all going to join up. And there's no there's no longer going to be a divide between cultures. There's no longer going to be a divide. And what's going to happen when people, uni- when people get this um, urge to create unification amongst diverse groups is that you start to see what the problem is. The problem is the system. And so what's going to happen right that we're going to go for the system and that that's the that's the best way to keep us separated right is make it political because you have these people on the side that saying like my life is not political and you have people on the side basically for all lives matter saying well this is about power and honestly like you're saying that my life doesn't matter and it's like but that's an internal system reacting to keep us separated if we right. all came together and said You know what? The fact that missing and murder indigenous women have still not been found and there's still not research to show how frequently it happens. If we, you know, still don't really have research on how frequently interactions with police and minority communities results in death. Right. And then the amount of times that police officers are held accountable. If we don't have that research, if we don't have hard facts, which is conducted by who? A higher system. If we don't have hard facts to back up what I'm saying, me just saying Black Lives Matter is just a feeling. It's just my stance because I'm black. But if I had empirical research that said, I can show you why the system believes my life doesn't matter. You can't, like you said, you can't argue against facts, right? But you can argue against feelings. You know what? It's interesting that we're back to the idea of facts and feelings. Mm -hmm. Because we started this conversation with talking about poetry and the difference between here, I'm just going to lay out. A convincing argument, mm-hmm. in, you know, maybe in terms of facts, but this is an expression of feeling. And now we're kind of, I think, have flipped it on the other side saying, yeah. well, feeling doesn't quite accomplish the goals. So really what it amounts to is we need both. Mm-hmm. And especially in recent years, there has been some real effort to get rid of the facts part. Yeah. And then what we have are reactive emotions mm-hmm. or feelings. And that's where the mm-hmm. divide and conquer you're describing. Mm-hmm. Those in power divide through the messages these uh, alternative realities mm-hmm. <laughs> stoke yeah. the emotion stoke the reaction we're mm-hmm. not taking steps back to breathe and come to response mm-hmm. <laughs> right so we are continuing to be pitted at each other and it's it's based on there's not real i think thinking going on 
I don't know if you ever noticed this. I don't know if I've seen it in person or if it's only through videos or, um, but if you were to try to get someone who is adamant, all lives matter and ask them, but do black lives matter? All lives matter. They will not come close to touching the words in sequence and mm-hmm. of saying black lives matter because it's a concept mm-hmm. and it's identity politics. Mm-hmm. No, no, no. I can't say those words, you see, because then I might be confused with being on your side. Exactly. Let's remove these concepts, right? Mm-hmm. And just be human with each other. Mm-hmm. I I have mentioned, I think, on this podcast before that I um, talk with a therapist. In mm-hmm. fact, I've advocated for a national therapy <laughs> plan for everybody because yeah. I think we all need it. Oh, definitely. And I talked with a therapist yesterday and it was there, there were some politics that came into it and mm-hmm. she had it, I think, a fantastic... Uh, you know, bit of advice here. Mm-hmm. Let's bring our conversations with people who we think have different politics. Let's bring them back to values. Mm. What are your values? And I suddenly, again, I visualize stuff. I started to visualize this middle ground that can seem like such a divide between mm-hmm. us, filling with all that we have in common. Mm-hmm. You know, you love your family. You mm-hmm. care about your sense of stability, security, participation in community, being accepted, Mm -hmm. all of these things, just like I do. Mm -hmm. And so I think the idea of values is something I want to remember and bring to conversations with people in the future. Um, Let's place our energy there on what those human values we share are. Yeah, that's a good point too, right? Because I also, kind of like a few points you mentioned, right, is that getting you know, a person to say Black Lives Matter, they believe all lives matter, right? I feel like it conveys two things, right? People who, I don't know, I feel like we talked about this when we met up, right? People who are scared of the R word, people just don't like the word race. I feel like that also plays a lot into it because they're like, oh, if I if I say black or if I say white or if I say, you know, Hispanic or if I if I place this identity on this person, am I going to be perceived as if I don't believe or, you know, I'm, I'm not showing what I believe? Or I might say it wrong. Or I might say it wrong, right? And I think there's there's humility in saying something wrong, but they're being corrected out of love. And I think also to your point too, right, is that I'm all for human connection, right? So whether you're black, white, Hispanic, indigenous, whatever the case may be, the point being is that we are all connected by our humanity, mind, body, soul, spirit, whatever you may believe. We're all connected, mind, body, heart, spirit, soul, in that, right? So the best way to divide us as like people is to place the labels, is to place the the identities, right? And not to say that I'm not going to walk around saying, oh, I'm not black. That's not what I mean. But it's to understand that, yes, I'm black. Yes, you're white. But let's talk about the humanity, right? You care about your, like you said, you care about your family. I care about mine. You want a, a better future for your kids. And I want to make sure that my kids aren't going to have to be protesting against, you know, my, your kids or whatever the case may be. Like, I I don't want I don't want my kids or the future, you know, African-American generation, whatever the case may be, to be in the same position that we're in right now, because this is the same position that, you know, not the exact same position that our ancestors were in, but the same position and fighting for our right to live our right to be connected, our right to understand that we want a better future. And I feel like 
even taking it a step further, right, is that my my proposal too is that let's let's not even talk about you, right? Let's talk about what future do you want for your kids? Do you want your kids to continue to live through um, mass shootings? Do you want your kids to continue to live through what it's like to to see constant black people laid out on the street? Because it pops up on social media all the time. And I was like, are you aware of the inherent trauma that that's placing on them? Are you aware that, right, so surviving, and I'm 25, so I've been through, not even within the place, but just our, um, like, history of, you know, school shootings, right? I said, we're to a point now where we're making bulletproof backpacks. And I said, we're to a point now where we are, as black people, we're still fighting for the right to live. I said, it's not even about to do what we want. But it's, it's, it's about the right to live. It's about the right to, okay, if I had this interaction with this white person who doesn't necessarily believe that my ancestors should have been free, so to speak, right, is that going to result in my death? If I had this interaction with the police system, is that going to result in my death? We have the right to live, just like your kids have the right to understand that there are different perspectives in the world, right? Just a small town. This is not the whole world. There's people who look like me who have blue hair and uh, blue hair, who have blonde hair and blue eyes. There are people who look like me who have very long, silky hair. There are people who have brown skin, but they are not African American. And I so I think for me is that um, especially for like our our older people, right? Or our older generation who or even I guess I guess that's a little ageist, right? So even for the people who have kids, I think the question poses is what do you want your kids to experience in this world? Do you want them to experience the same thing that we did? The housing insecurities, right? Do you want them to experience the same thing that we are still experiencing? And if your answer is no, <laughs> then that is where our unification is. Do you want your kids to be out in the street protesting? Do you want your kids to to be in their cars and running over protesters, right? What what do you want for your kids? Because I feel like it's hard for people to say what they want for themselves. But if you have children, you're like, I want, I want the best for them. I want them to grow up in a world where people are safe and we're all equitable or where they can have interactions with people of different races and, you know, know that they have biases, but they work to confront them because whether people understand it or not, we all have biases. We all operate in a system within biases until we're shown otherwise. You know, we're talking about safety and my 12 year old son rides his bike to school every day. And one day, you know, during this school year, he said to me and my wife, you guys tell me goodbye like you're not going to see me again. Mm. And it, it it hits you in the gut, in the mm-hmm. heart. I was not necessarily thinking about my daily, I love you, have a great day, goodbye, hugs, mm-hmm. in that way. Mm-hmm. And yet, yeah, we send our kids to school crossing our fingers hoping they come home mm-hmm. because that is what we've enabled in this, in this country. Mm-hmm. And I feel like all of these big topics we're talking about, we're all looking at it probably no matter what what piece of this political spectrum you hold, I think we probably can all agree we think this isn't right. We think it's not good. None of us should have to be living this way. But instead of taking responsibility for it mm-hmm. as a collection, especially of adults, mm-hmm. And saying, we need to come together and fix this, we instead point to somebody else and say, you fix it. It's your fault. It's your mm-hmm. problem. And we justify its existence mm-hmm. and allow it to keep going. Yeah. What we are talking about, you were saying 
human earlier. You were talking about the humanity of things. And it occurs to me in this divide and conquer, we're talking about dehumanization, mm-hmm. right? We're talking about othering. You are mm-hmm. other. You're not as good as me. Mm-hmm. You don't deserve what I deserve. Mm-hmm. You're taking from me. Mm-hmm. You mentioned earlier the fear people feel mm-hmm. in the system. If you're part of the system, I, I am the system. Mm-hmm. I am a white male cisgender, heterosexual, I mm-hmm. I am, I embody physically yeah. everything that this system here in this country mm-hmm. is built on. <laughs> if we are going to other everybody else and act like we're afraid that they are taking what is ours, mm-hmm. we're not going to get where we need to go. I wonder what allyship looks like to you when we're talking about bringing people together who understand these things and maybe participate in something, whether it's called Black Lives Matter or it's just, I care about people and I want a better world. What does allyship look like for you? Allyship to me looks like a few different things. Um, The first thing is allyship to me is not walking in front of, but it's walking with. So if you're going to stand with me to say that women deserve rights over their own bodies, don't walk in front of me. Right. And that that's metaphorically. Right. So I don't need you speaking for me on situations that are applicable to me. I just need you to come with me hand in hand and say, I'm with you to fight this fight. Right. And so it's walking with, not in front of. um, But it's also to me, the this is going to sound crazy, right? It's also to me the ability to be able to feel like humility, right? Because allyship is an ever learning process. I can't say, oh, I'm an ally for trans women, but then sit back and like, oh, I'm aware of what's going on, but I'm not going to say anything or, oh my gosh, did you see what happened? But then that's it. So I'm just talking about it to, what, garnish conversation. So it's also about the humility and learning that we are not going to have things right all the time, right? As an ally to trans women, trans men, and all the other identities that I don't hold, I can't say, I can't speak for them. And I also can't say, oh, well, like, yeah, I'm with you, but just maybe not in certain spaces or certain times or get angry or upset if they try to correct me. And how I may say something or the terminology that I may use. So to me, it's about humility. It's about walking with and not in front of. And it's also about like not necessarily speaking for them, but amplifying their voice. So they say something and apparently people haven't heard it. You amplify it. You use the language that they use. You don't say, oh, well, this is what they said. But let me let me phrase it in a way that is more comfortable for me. It's also about being uncomfortable. Allyship is uncomfortable because it's about learning and unlearning. And also, a lot of people don't like humility. (laughs) A lot of people are not fans of being, you know, experiencing any type of humility, right? Because when we're wrong as humans, we're like, oh, we're wrong. Like, there's some type of internal reaction. We're having to to face our shame in that. Mm -hmm. And that's a really hard place to go to inside of ourselves. Yeah. Something from this George Floyd era that... As a, as a white man who needs to learn plenty of things still, unlearn plenty of things, have that humility, Some a phrase that sticks in my head that I feel like came up, it was something I started noticing during that time was being willing to be wrong. Mm-hmm. And specifically as it relates to conversations with people who have different experiences, so we might be talking racially or in whatever ways, mm-hmm. but to be willing to be wrong and Go ahead and put my language out there the best that I can. Mm -hmm. It's with good intentions. It's with compassion. And also, I might need you to tell Mm -hmm. me, okay, 
we need to tweak that that a little bit. <laughs> yeah. And here's my perspective and here's why. I feel like that humility is, well, it is absolutely critical for any of us, especially those of us who have so much to unlearn by being willing to hear other perspectives with empathy, sit with that, mm-hmm. not react, not not reject it, mm-hmm. right? Because that that infringes on, well, what you just said that you have rights in humanity. Well, that infringes on my understanding of the world. Well, mm-hmm. that's absurd. Yeah, right. Right? So mm-hmm. we need to be willing to sit with that and then have hard conversations where the person in the other seat can say, "Okay, I I've got a different perspective. Let me let me uh mm-hmm. give you some information here." Mm-hmm. Um are you having these kinds of conversations with people? Do you feel like in having an opportunity to to bring more of this allyship together? Do you feel like well, has anything changed, I guess, in the last few years in your experience where people are willing to say what I am? You know what? I'm willing to be wrong. Tell me what I need to know. Um, I think that as much as I have hope for humanity, I think with COVID and with the era of George Floyd, right, is that a lot of people, like, they haven't verbalized it, right? Because kind of like what you're doing, right? You took a step back and you're like, oh... You know, I'm willing to put this out there. Let me let me brace myself, right, for you know what what could be said that oh that's not necessarily right. And so I think a lot of people they're thinking about it. They're thinking about you know oh you know maybe the way that I was raised to you know maybe walk across the street when there's a black person coming or to clutch my purse when I see a black man, right? Maybe that wasn't the best way. But it takes there's steps to this, right? You think about it. And then you sit with it and then you verbalize it. So I think a lot of people are at the thinking about it and sitting with it phase, but they have yet to verbalize it. And I think for me, personally, the only thing that has shifted is the way that I understand the world and how the systems that we all operate in um, of essentially affect how these people are able to verbalize certain things. And so for me, it's about... And this is such a growth. I would not have said this three years ago. Um, But as for me, it's about garnishing the understanding that we are all living in the same world through different lenses and different perspectives. So I can't be, you know, if somebody's racist or somebody, you know, calls me the N-word or something like that, I can't necessarily, I can be upset with them and I can take that power back from them and let them know that what you said is racist and which I have done, racist and uneducated. But at the same time, I have to look at all the systems, right? So seeing me with, you know, a bonnet on or seeing my tattoos may not garnish the same reaction if you see me dressed up or looking more quote unquote presentable, right? And so for me, it's not necessarily about the people, but it's how I interact with those people. And coming out here two years ago, I already said, I was like, I need to uproot myself. I said, because this was emotionally a lot for me. It has taken a lot from me um, and has put me in a place where I can't be my best self. And I can't go into social work knowing I have biases So saying, oh, well, it's about safety. I was like, not all the time, not you know? And it's about weighing what is a bias and what is actually a safety concern. And so I think for me, right, and I don't want people to like not understand that while white people have a lot of work to do, we as black people and minorities, we also have work to do. It just does not look the same. It does not look the same. Right. And so I think it was about, 
and I'm still working on this, not perfect at all, right? But when I run into situations where people may be staring at me or people may use a slur against me, right? It's one, it's about taking that power back. So if it's more so being called the N-word, it's about letting them know that you are uneducated and you are extremely racist, even if you don't see it. But racist is not a person, it is an ideology. Racist is not a way of being. They are ideologies. And you can what? You can change right. ideologies, right? But do you want to? <laughs> are you willing to, kind of like what you said, are you willing to, to be wrong? Are you willing to say, hey, this is how I was raised, um, and this is what I used to believe, it, you know? And th- so I'm going to say this and, you know, be willing to be like to, for a person of that group to say, hey, you know what? Actually, don't say that. Right? That is not that is not socially acceptable. Right. Um, but I also feel like it comes from a place of love. Right. And so when I talked about my activism earlier, I said I did it out of anger. And so now I'm moving to a place where I'm like, I can do activism out of love and out of the, the desire to have a better world for my kids who are not here yet, but also for the kids who are here. Um, two years ago, when I decided to come to this very rural town, um, <laughs> I, I made a commitment to myself. I said, we all know I'm black. I can't, you know, hang my skin up in my closet and go through the day. It does not work like that. I said, so what is the way that I can essentially present myself to combat biases and or stereotypes? And I said, I'm going to come out here with grace, love, kindness, and all the kids that I have interacted with, whether I taught them, whether I have, you know, babysat them or cared for them in any way. I said, I, it's all about kindness and love and respect. I said, because I want them to, to kind of understand, right, that there are people who look like me who, you know, and there's people who look like you who, who aren't good, who, who do terrible things. But there are also people who look like both of us who do amazing and beautiful things but because of this very visible you know aspect of race that that is kind of taken from them and so coming out here and understanding that I'm coming into a community with lack of diversity but also understanding that I'm putting myself in this situation to better myself has had an effect on how I interact with these people and how I treat these people who are basically against you know, my race, which is something that I, I can't change. Um, and I also think about it, too, because um, my thoughts is that, right, like, you, it's really hard to change your mind with somebody who's 80. <laughs> I said, so what is a way to, to make sure that we're not perpetuating certain cycles? I said, to show up in a manner and a like in which they have never seen before. Mm-hmm. So I may not be able to change the 80-year-old, but the 5-year-old, they're a little bit more formative. You can influence them better. We talked about this in my class yesterday about um, just like the realms of different types of power, right? Visible, invisible, whatever the case may be. And I said, as the only black woman at Longfellow, I wield a certain power. I said, because of the lack of diversity, right? Um, I, Me being there and teaching them alone is combating what they may hear at home. I said, because I'm not showing up angry. I'm not showing up yelling at them. I said, I'm showing up. I'm caring about them. Hug them if they need me to, right? And being a a person. I'm not showing up as a black person or a black woman. I'm showing up as a person that they know they can rely on. And that alone wields power because our interaction from, you know, K through fourth grade, if they've never interacted with another black person, right? That interaction alone could seep into their brains. So as they get older, they're like, oh, I remember, yeah, I had one black teacher miss. And I tell them, 
I tell them all the time. I said, I want y'all to understand. I said, at the end of the school year, I'm going to see if I can get pictures taken with y'all for y'all to take them home. on like my pol- my Polaroid camera. I said, and I want y'all to hold on to that. I said, because I need y'all to understand that there are people who look like me, but there are a lot of people who won't step into this place that I'm in. And I may be your only black teacher for a long time, mm-hmm. but I want you to hold on to that because, you know, I feel like when you have, and this is where it goes back to like connection and humanity, right? When you have a connection with somebody, everything that society throws on us as far as identities, class, age, and all of that good stuff, that goes out the window. Because you start thinking about, wow, like they treated me really well. And I think in the moments where I've ran into people who are racist towards me or use a racial slur towards me, in that moment, I had two choices. I could have been the person I was in 2020 and just went off on a, a lot of, you know, said a lot of colorful names, so to speak. I said, but in that <laughs> moment, <laughs> I decided to think about all the white people that I've had a connection with. I said it was no longer about me being white or them being black. It was about the connection we had. And that fostered how I handle situations. So it's about connecting with the younger kids. Granted, I can connect with adults, too. That's fine. But after 25, you're pretty much stuck in your ways unless you're making uh, a consistent effort to challenge your thinking. But little yeah. kids, they're formative. It takes right? work. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And a lot of people don't want to do it because it's uncomfortable. You were talking about work that, you know, okay, white people need to do work. Black people, every, mm-hmm. everybody, every mm-hmm. human has work mm-hmm. that they do. But what that brought to mind for me is that I suspect there's a lot of fear in that mm-hmm. when if we look at politics, it's typically a left side of things in this country to say, no, we need to care about the humanity and rights of everybody. Mm-hmm. If you are part of the system, again, we've already laid this out, that it, it, it's typically white, it's typically, you know, fits these categories. That's a scary prospect because what I suspect, if you're not willing to have that humility, what it says is you need to change. Mm-hmm. Not black people, not brown people, not any of these – and that's not what's being said. It's a misunderstanding. No one is coming at, at you as part of this system that is entrenched and in, in the and what has been here so dominant for long, you know, centuries. Mm-hmm. We're not saying you're the problem. We're saying, like you said with ideology, we need to come back to this. We can change our thoughts, our ideas, our understandings of the world. There's room for all of us. Mm-hmm. Nobody's saying you're wrong. You don't yeah. have to take that as an ego hit. Yeah. But I think that's where we are for a lot of these things. And I appreciate the work you're doing when you're talking about with these kids, um, elementary-aged kids, mm-hmm. and saying, here is maybe your first experience mm-hmm. with someone who comes from my background, mm-hmm. has my stories to tell. But the more we have those experiences that go against the myths that we've been taught, the more I think that's going to get into our brains and say, mm-hmm. wait wait a second. You you keep perpetuating this, this false idea that this is about – race. This is about how that kind of person, like, all right, no, I have enough experiences to counter that now. Mm -hmm. I'm going to change something here. Yeah. So you are a significant, I think, keystone in their experience right now. I appreciate that you were willing to take that leap and say, I'm going to leave Cleveland. I'm going to leave my experiences and come out to a place in Colorado, rural, so different. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think to your point, too, is like, as you know, right, Black History Month, right, was in February. And January, I made it a point to them. 
I said, in case y'all don't know, and I tell this joke all the time. I was like, in case y'all don't know, I don't look like y'all, right? I'm black, right? Or I'm African-American. And one of my kids, she was like, my mom said not to say black. She says to say African-American. I said, baby, I said, that is perfectly fine. I said, you can use African-American. I said, I say black because that is what comes to mind, right? Is that we don't navigate our world based on um, ethnicity. We navigate it based on color. I was like, but she's young and she... She's like in like fourth grade and she's white. So I think her being taught that, you know, proper language essentially is also very important. And so we did a whole thing at Longfellow for Black History Month. And I think that I took the initiative on that. I was like, because I'm in a space where these are all young kids. And I said, and they need to understand or not even understand. They need to see african-american or black people in a light that's not on a basketball court or on a football field and so for the month of um february we went through we talked about ruby bridges we talked about bayard rustin we talked about barack obama right as a first black president and we know how the world is which means that may never happen again or at least not for a long time and right and so we talked about ruby bridges And we read just like a lot of different books about um, people who have influenced our history. And um, one of of my kids, she was just we were just kind of like talking about it. And she was like, so wait, you mean to tell me that like people who look like you and the people who look like me, we were in two different schools at one point in time? I said, yeah, I said Ruby Bridges was one among I think like six who went, you know, who integrated an elementary school. I said six. I said she's as old as y'all were. And I said, and she horrible thing, she was spat at. They told her that they were gonna poison her food so she didn't eat. And so I also bridged that connection to I said, because y'all are both in elementary school. And then I also um I put up some stuff around Longfellow. I put everything in color. I said, because I need them to also understand that this didn't happen during great, 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 great grandma time. This happened when your parents and your grandparents were growing up. And so I told us that Ruby Bridges is still alive. And then we also went into, because we talked about how she had a white teacher who was willing to teach her. I said, I need y'all to also understand that a, a while ago, not even that long ago, I said, I wouldn't even be able to be here teaching y'all because of what I look like. And it was like, oh, but we love you and <laughs> all this good stuff. And I was like, I love y'all too. I love y'all with all my heart, right? I said, but the idea is like we've been talking about this whole time, is the connection. So connecting the fact that I'm their teacher, but I also hold this identity as a black woman or an African-American woman, that put things into perspective for them because then they're able to see that, oh, most of my teachers are, they are white, except Miss Elysia, but I have a different type of way of, like the way we interact is completely different because I also, as a reading interventionist, right, I have to teach them how to properly use or properly talk in, you know, English or whatever the case may be. I was like, but I'll tell you all to my side, I speak in two languages. I speak African-American vernacular English. Um, I don't like using the word slang, but A-A-V-E, and I speak proper English when it deems necessary. So with my kids, I make sure that I use them interchangeably and I tell them, I was like, how I'm talking is not wrong. It's just not a way that you have heard before. Um, How I interact with y'all is not wrong. It's just not going to be the same way that your white teachers interact with y'all because my need to make a connection with y'all is going to take a lot more time and a lot more trust on my end and on theirs, even if they're unaware of it, as opposed to seeing somebody who looks like them, which garnishes instantaneous, I'm going to trust you. I like you because we, we look alike. If we go back to the being willing to be wrong thing, and I'm thinking of this girl who said, oh, I'm not supposed to say black. Mm-hmm. 
I think, so I have these conversations at home and, and with others sometimes too, um, who, you know, we get into this idea of, I don't think we need to walk on eggshells. That's not, we need to be willing to be wrong. Mm-hmm. I don't need to give up my identity in order to accept that mm-hmm. or respect that someone else has theirs, right? Mm-hmm. And it brings me to this idea of white guilt. It's like we don't need to carry that around, I don't believe. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> because then we're walking on eggshells acting like I don't get to be my full self. Mm-hmm. But to me, this whole conversation is immensely full of respect in both directions mm-hmm. as humans and the rest, the topical stuff on yeah. the side, right? Neither of us needs to give up who we are. Mm-mm. needs to set that aside in order to make room for the other. This is not a, a zero-sum game in which someone has to win and someone has to mm-hmm. lose. We can all win. Yeah. Let's just have the conversations. Mm-hmm. So I really appreciate your taking the time and to go into these places with me for this conversation, to go so deeply there, share so much of yourself. I, I think this is, one, it's enjoyable to me to have conversations of depth that, that need to be had, but then we get to share it with others. And so I'm sure this is going to be of use to, to people who are listening. I appreciate your being here to, to do it with me, Alicia. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being open about your experiences as well. And the fact that you're also learning and unlearning, because I think that's powerful to hear from people who navigate the same identity is that I too look like you, but I'm also learning and unlearning. You know, I may be a little further on my journey, But if we all start the journey to learn or to even start the process of unlearning and then start the process of re-educating ourselves. Be willing to get uncomfortable, Mm -hmm. like you said. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you. That was me talking with Alicia Pearl. If what Alicia shared here today sparked curiosity for you, you can learn more in this episode's show notes at wearechafee.org. If you have comments or know someone in Chafee County, Colorado, who I should consider talking with on the podcast, you can email us at info at wearechafee.org. We invite you to rate and review the We Are Chafee Looking Upstream podcast on Apple, Spotify, or whatever platform you use with that functionality. We also invite you to tell others about the Looking Upstream podcast. Help us to keep growing community and connection through conversation. Once again, I'm Adam Williams, host, producer, and photographer. John Prey is engineer and producer. Thank you to KHEN 106.9 FM Community Radio, where we recorded today's conversation in Salida, Colorado. To Heather Gorby for graphic and web design. To Andrea Carlstrom, Director of Chafee County Public Health and Environment. And to Lisa Martin, Community Advocacy Coordinator for the We Are Chafee Storytelling Initiative. The We Are Chafee Looking Upstream podcast is a collaboration with the Chafee County Department of Public Health and the Chafee Housing Authority. And it's supported by the Colorado Public Health and Environment Office of Health Disparities. You can learn more about the Looking Upstream podcast and related storytelling initiatives at wearechafee.org and on Instagram and Facebook at wearechafee. Lastly, thank you for listening. And remember, as we say here at We Are Chafee, be human, share stories, 